Good morning. In today's headlines, voters took to the polls yesterday deciding on abortion access and marijuana legalization in one state and governors and legislators in others. We have the results and analysis on some key races. It's debate night and Republicans have a lot to prove. Will it give candidates the boost they need to catch the GOP frontrunner? We have a director of debate break it down. Congresswoman Talib was censured by the House of Representatives. Hear her response to accusations of anti-Semitism. Special counsel David Weiss says politics played no part in his investigation into Hunter Biden. House Judiciary Chim Chair Jim Jordan responds. Is the Biden administration's push for more safety surrounding the use of artificial intelligence enough? A data security professional tells us his answer to this and more about the tech's underlying biases. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning for me as well. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Wednesday, November 8th. Yeah, and I'm really excited about the debate tonight. It seems like there's just less candidates on stage, so you know what that means. Yeah, more time for them to elaborate on their ideas. Yeah, we'll see if anyone can separate themselves to give Trump a good match. All right. You know, some say it's Haley's time to shine. A good point. Let's see. Um, but we start with a short update on something else, on the Israel-Hamas war. As Israel intensifies its ground offensive on the northern part of the Gaza Strip, it says its troops have reached the heart of Gaza City. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has reaffirmed his position against an indefinite stop to the fighting. He said that would allow Hamas to regroup and attack Israel again. Here is Blinken during the G7 conference in Japan today. All of us want to end this conflict as soon as possible, and meanwhile, to minimize civilian suffering. But as I discussed with my G7 colleagues, those calling for an immediate ceasefire have an obligation to explain how to address the unacceptable result it would likely bring about. Ultimately, the only way to ensure that this crisis never happens again is to begin setting the conditions for durable peace and security and to frame our diplomatic efforts now with that in mind. He also restated U.S. opposition to Israel reoccupying the Gaza Strip. That's after Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Israel will assume overall security responsibility for Gaza following the war. A senior advisor to Netanyahu told CNN yesterday that it doesn't mean Israel will occupy Gaza and govern the people there. The official affirmed the importance of preventing a renewed terrorist element. Voters cast ballots yesterday to choose governors in Kentucky and Mississippi and decide legislative control in Virginia and New Jersey and determine if the Ohio State Constitution should enshrine access to abortion. And today's Daniel Monahan has the latest results. Republicans and Democrats were tuning in to see if the results in key races would provide insight into the upcoming 2024 elections. Starting out with the gubernatorial contests, Democrat Governor Andy Beshear won re-election in Kentucky, defeating Republican State Attorney General Daniel Cameron. That's in a state that voted for former President Donald Trump by more than 25 percentage points in 2020. A July poll conducted by Morning Consult rated Beshear the nation's most popular Democratic governor. Cameron had repeatedly criticized Beshear for vetoing transgender-related bills 
including one that banned cross-sex procedures on minors and another that prevented men who identify as women from participating in women's sports. In Mississippi, Republican Governor Tate Reeves won his bid for re-election against Democrat Brandon Presley, a second cousin of singer Elvis Presley. Reeves had consistently led the polls in the deep red state, which has not elected a Democrat as governor in 20 years. Over to the legislature, all 40 seats in Virginia's Senate and 100 seats in the House of Delegates were up for grabs. One of the House of Delegates races includes a candidate embroiled in a sex scandal. Democrat Susanna Gibson allegedly engaged in explicit acts with her husband on a pornographic website. Democrats held control of the Senate and won control of the House in those races. The Democrats sweep thwarts the possibility of a new 15-week abortion ban that Republicans had vowed to pass had they won control of the legislature. In New Jersey, Republicans were fighting for control of either legislative chamber in the deep blue state, where all seats in the General Assembly and Senate are in play. Republicans have gained ground since 2021 when they flipped seven seats and campaigned on issues ranging from the economy to parental rights. Some races have yet to be called, but the Washington Post reports that Democrats held on to enough seats to thwart Republican attempts to take control of one or both chambers for the first time in over 20 years. Over to a pair of Ohio ballot measures. Ohioans voted to enshrine abortion access in the state constitution. That will nullify a six-week abortion limit signed into law by Republican Governor Mike DeWine. Voters also approved a ballot measure legalizing marijuana for recreational use. Turning to the courts, Democratic candidate Daniel McCaffrey won the open seat on Pennsylvania's Supreme Court, defeating Republican Carolyn Carluccio for the 10-year position. His victory widens the Democratic majority on the state's highest court to 5-2. to two. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Now we talk strategy about the third GOP debate taking place tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern in Miami-Dade County. Please welcome Aaron Call, the director of debate at the University of Michigan. Aaron, thank you for your time this morning. What do GOP candidates have to prove tonight? Yeah, some of them have to just survive to fight another day if they're low in the polls, but the front runners on stage, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, have to both contrast themselves favorably, but also remember, even though that Trump, uh, Donald Trump is not on stage, that he still has a commanding lead in the race. And so they have to talk about him and try to bring them down to their level, even if he may not be there still participating in the contest. It's a very tough uh, thing to do, and they'll have two hours uh, to attempt that. You say front runners plural on stage. Will DeSantis be able to play that front runner card anymore and just kind of go on the counterattack, or is he going to actually have to go on the offensive here? I think he'll likely go on the offensive. We now we're down to just five candidates. We started out as a much larger field. When this race began, it looked like he was the most formidable uh, opponent to Donald Trump, but things haven't worked out uh, as planned for him. Nikki Haley has benefited the most from these uh, two debates so far. Um, she started out um, much lower in the polls, but he's, for the first two debates, mostly stayed above the fray, not attacked too much, unlike some of the other candidates, but Given the smaller amount of candidates and the fact that the debate is occurring in his home state of Florida, I think he's going to be front and center and, and getting into a lot of heated exchange tonight, including uh, with Nikki Haley, just because they share that same lane. Yeah, he may have home field advantage, but there's still going to be a lot of attacks coming his way. Haley is pulling ahead in the polls based on some measures. 
Do you think that she's going to be able to continue her strong performance, and how critical is that here? Yeah, it's critical. Voting is just about two months away, starting in Iowa, and she has done very well so far. She has a very impressive biography of being a former congresswoman and governor of South Carolina, who's the United Nations ambassador, and she's really done a good job of kind of being the Washington outsider in this race. While she did work in the Trump administration briefly, the United Nations was in New York, um, where DeSantis and, and some of the other candidates were in Washington, D.C., taking some controversial votes on spending. And so um, it is tougher as we go along because the expectations increase and debates a lot of time about the expectations. But um, she's very formidable and has always been a good debater. So I would expect um, those solid performances on the stage to continue. Aaron, does Haley need to dedicate most of her time to direct attacks against Trump, or does she need to start challenging DeSantis still? Yeah, that's the real, the, the tough job of, of the contenders. I think she needs to do both, because even if she has a good performance and maybe you know best as DeSantis in person, if Trump still has a huge lead nationally and in the early states, she really didn't accomplish much. So, you know, the moderators haven't been uh, talking about Trump very much because he's chosen to skip the debates. But that doesn't mean the candidates can't. So they need to talk about their own biographies. Um, contrast them, their positions uh, with the others that are currently on the stage, but not forget about Trump. He's only going to be a few miles away at a rally, and he still is the formidable frontrunner. And so if they, they, they don't bring him back to uh, make it a closer race, then the debate's ultimately irrelevant. So it's a very tough task. No one's quite figured it out or had to exactly attack Trump without the risk of alienating his voters. Um, but time is of the essence, and there's not going to be many debates left before uh, early voting starts in January. So a couple of weeks ago, Ramaswamy floated the idea of actually skipping the third debate, saying that he wants to advance quality debate and that these debates don't serve the voting public. I mean, these candidates can get up there and say whatever they want about policy. There's nothing holding them back. So how can the debate format be improved to satisfy his request? Yeah, this is a pretty common uh, when candidates try to attack either the moderators or the formats. And we have seen some questionable things uh, this cycle. I mean, the first two debates were uh, just on, on Fox, and now this one's moving to NBC. In the last debate, they tried this survivor skit where they would kick off one of the, uh, the candidates on stage. It was a little unorthodox. The candidates were just kind of talking over each other. Two or three of the moderators last time didn't have any previous experience in this uh, venue, and it showed. And, and Tim Scott has criticized um, the polls they use to determine where the candidates sit on stage. At the very beginning, DeSantis also threatened to, to not debate, but ultimately everyone uh, does debate and, you know, kind of complaining about the rules is just try to, is their ability to try to influence and get more favorable treatment for themselves. But the candidates have no other platform like this where millions or even tens of millions of people are going to tune in on a large stage. And so they need to take advantage of these various precious opportunities with the race starting soon. Well, we have a lot to look out for here. Aaron Call, Director of Debate at the University of Michigan. Thank you for your time. Anytime. Right after the debate, tune in to catch NTD's news analysis from 10 to 11 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll cover the debate in depth with special guests and reporters. We'll also hear from voters. You can catch it on TV or you can also watch it on NTD.com and on Epoch TV, of course. So hope you will join us. Yes, and keep an eye out for any kind of like body language or things that can be dead giveaways. Oh, yeah, good point. Yeah, like how DeSantis looked over to see and then he raised his hand. So there's just all of these subtleties that go into it in addition to the ideas that they present. That's right.
Yeah. Stay with us here. We're one year away from the presidential election and a new CNN poll shows former President Donald Trump narrowly leads President Biden among registered voters. The poll found President Biden's support among several key groups is significantly weaker than in 2020. That includes people under 35 plus independent black and Latino voters. The new poll shows only one in four Americans believe Biden has the stamina and sharpness to serve a second term in office, while 53% say Trump does. Both men have unfavorable ratings in the mid to high 50s. New polling by the New York Times and Siena College also shows Biden trailing Trump in nearly every major battleground state. Between 60 and 70% in those key states say the country is heading in the wrong direction. That includes the majority of voters from every racial, gender, education, and income class. After the break, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib's censored by the House of Representatives over comments on the Israel-Hamas conflict. Hear how she responds. Special Counsel David Weiss says pol politics played no part in his investigation into Hunter Biden. House Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan responds. American pension funds possibly strengthening the Chinese Communist Party. Congress investigating ESG investments. Find out how your retirement funds could be supporting China and Iran after the break. Welcome back. The House voted yesterday to censure Michigan Representative Rashida Tlaib, a punishment one step below expulsion. The 234 to 188 final vote came after some Democrats sided with Republicans to pass the measure. Representative Rich McCormick moved to censure Tlaib for what he called her anti-Semitic re rhetoric and for calling for the destruction of the state of Israel. Tlaib said she will not be silenced and her criticism were directed toward the Israeli government. She said, quote, the idea that criticizing the government of Israel's anti-Semitic sets a very dangerous precedent. Many opponents of the censure in both parties cited free speech as their objection and warned of the precedent this censure could set. Tlaib becomes the 26th person ever to be censured by the chamber and the second person this year. Tlaib will have the formal reprimand read aloud to her on the House floor. U.S. Special Counsel David Weiss made a rare appearance before Congress yesterday. Weiss is overseeing the Hunter Biden federal investigation. The closed-door interview marked the first time a special counsel has testified to lawmakers while in the middle of an investigation. The prosecutor said he would not answer questions that could jeopardize the probe and would only talk about the scope of his authority. House Republicans are looking to ramp up the pressure of their impeachment inquiry into President Biden and his family. That's over allegations and whistleblower testimony that the Justice Department improperly interfered with the Hunter Biden investigation. And today's Jeremy Sandberg tells us more. Special Counsel David Weiss Tuesday contradicted earlier IRS whistleblower testimony in his nearly seven-hour-long closed-door interview with the House Judiciary Committee. He said at no time was he interfered with, blocked, or stopped from bringing charges in his probe of Hunter Biden. Weiss testified political considerations played no part in the investigation and that he is and has been the ultimate decision maker on the case. But he says he does not make decisions in a vacuum and must follow DOJ and federal guidelines, processes and law. 
IRS whistleblowers Gary Shapley and his deputy Joseph Ziegler alleged the Justice Department interfered throughout Weiss's investigation and testified Weiss was not the deciding person on if charges against the president's son were filed. They also alleged Weiss asked for special counsel authority from the DOJ but was denied. Shapley provided meeting notes and email exchanges to Congress to back up his claims. Weiss disputes the allegations, as does Attorney General Merrick Garland. But House Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan says Weiss has changed his story multiple times now and that his statements Tuesday contradict his previous testimony. Jordan told Fox News host Sean Hannity that Weiss said under oath he had previously asked for special attorney status but was never granted it. So he sought it but was never actually given that and yet he maintained somehow that, oh, I still had the authority even though I asked for it and even though they never gave it to me, somehow he still had it. Jordan says it only further confirms what whistleblowers have said. Democratic Representative Mary Gay Scanlon called the hearing a desperate search for political dirt that she says isn't there. And we see Jim Jordan and his MAGA crew out there trying to weaponize the Judiciary Committee. GOP Representative Matt Gates called Weiss's testimony very evasive. The reason Congress has questions is because that deliberative process has resulted in some pretty bizarre outcomes that we can't explain to our constituents. At least 10 FBI, IRS, and DOJ current and former officials have testified behind closed doors as part of lawmakers' inquiry so far. Congressman Jordan says Weiss's transcribed interview will be out in a couple days. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Ivanka Trump is expected to testify today at former President Trump's civil fraud trial. Her turn comes after brothers Eric and Donald Trump Jr. and former President Trump have all testified. Ivanka Trump is no longer a defendant in the civil trial. However, it's expected she will have to answer questions about her former dealings as an executive in her father's business organization. Judge Ngorin has already ruled that Trump engaged in fraud. The questions now are meant to settle allegations of conspiracy, insurance fraud, and falsifying records. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is set to arrive in South Korea today. He'll be meeting with his counterpart in Seoul amid growing concerns of North Korea's military ties to Russia. The Indo-Pacific has become a top priority for a top the U.S. Democrat following his shuttle diplomacy in the Middle East. Combating economic coercion by the Chinese Communist Party in the region is at the top of Blinken's list. A recent investigation by the Epoch Times found the Chinese embassy in South Korea was threatening theaters with financial and diplomatic leverage that was to keep New York-based Chen Yun from appearing. The internationally acclaimed classical Chinese dance and music company showcases Chinese culture before communism. NTD's Iris Tao asked a State Department spokesperson about it. Watch. Does it remain a concern by the State Department that in such incidents like this, China is using its economic pressure to influence the freedom of expression in an ally country? Broadly, I would say it, of course, continues to remain of concern. Uh, the PRC has a very clear track record of using um, economic coercion and otherwise in a, uh, in, a, in a wide array of countries, not just necessarily uh, the ROK. But uh, this is, of course, something that we're going to continue to address in close partnership with uh, the ROK, with Japan, with other countries um, uh, in the Indo-Pacific as well. We do not um, ask countries to choose between the United States and the PRC or any other country. It is about offering them a choice and continuing to show what a deepening partnership with the uh, United States uh, can look like. 
Shen Yun Performing Arts has faced challenges in South Korea for years due to Chinese regime influence, but organizers said it was particularly worse this year. Blinken is also heading to India and Indonesia during his trip. He's joined by several national security officials, including Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin. And leaders from around the world, including President Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping, will soon gather in San Francisco. Thousands of government heads and CEOs will also attend the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Conference. Here's NTD's David Jang with more on what to expect. 20,000 attendees representing 21 member economies will be in the city of San Francisco. But what are the highlights other than heightened security, massive road closures and protests? I think it's particularly significant this year because with the tension between the United States and China, the opportunity to have President Xi meet with President Biden is a very important one. The White House announced the last week that U.S. President Biden will meet with the Chinese leader Xi Jinping, making the first time the two leaders will speak in person since a year ago. Chairman Xi is facing a lot of pressure of a down, downturn economy in China. He wants American business to, uh, to go to China to make more investment, and he also wants Americans to buy more products from China. Uh, so that's why he's coming. Both sides have been showing signs of easing up the tensions. As I've said since the beginning of my administration, we seek competition, not conflict with China. We're not looking for a new Cold War. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is also scheduled to host Chinese Vice Premier He Lifeng for two days for talks in San Francisco before the start of APEC summit. This all comes on the heels of California Governor Newsom's recent week-long visit to China and meeting with the Chinese President Xi. The key discussions of this year's summit will center around trade, technology transfer, and economic development. The United States is very concerned about technology transfer to China. The United States has been very aggressive in pushing restrictions on semiconductors, and that's been a very important issue for us because we're very concerned about the transfer of technology to China, potentially for defense purposes. But others are skeptical of China's position in the economic sector. More than 90% of Americans have uh, negative opinions about China. So I don't think she is going to be very successful to attract a lot of uh, investments to China. While APEC is intended to be an economic forum, political topics do come up during discussions among world leaders, especially when international tensions run high with the current Russia-Ukraine war and conflicts in the Middle East. Meanwhile, San Francisco is aggressively clearing homeless encampments, increasing drug-related arrests to improve the city's image as delegations arrive. Investing retirement plans into ESG funds. A financial expert tells Congress American pension funds are being used to strengthen the Chinese Communist Party in, and Iran. Entities Arian Pastar has the highlights from yesterday's hearing. The goal of ESG is not better financial performance. It is to force compliance to one view. The House Ways and Means Committee on Tuesday investigating retirement plans being invested into ESG funds. ESG stands for Environmental, Social and Governance. In the past, pension managers had to aim for maximum profit over everything else. However, in 2022, the Biden administration changed the rules, saying they may consider climate change and other environmental, social and governance factors in selecting retirement investments. 
Numbers now show such investments do bring less returns. They could have had 11.5% return, but they've only had a 4.5% return. That's not keeping pace with inflation. This witness, Jason Isaac, former Texas state representative and director of Life Powered, says such investments do more damage besides hurting returns. Now, Isaac says ESG funds directly play into the hands of the Chinese Communist Party, going as far as to call it the China ESG agenda. He says that as soon as rules changed in 2022, asset managers pulled their money out of American energy production. And they now use those same funds to instead invest in energy production in China. And Isaac explains the consequences of that. Take a look. And we're seeing dollars flow into Iran from China to the tune of 50 to 80 billion dollars because of the ESG agenda. And guess who's going to be buying the refined products that China is producing because they've expanded their refining capacity? The United States will be buying jet fuel, diesel, and home heating oil made from Iranian oil that is funding this war on terror. Republican Congresswoman Claudia Tenney asked another one of the witnesses what people can do to counter the ESG trend. Each of us as consumers need to have our voices heard when we see companies politicizing their business like we saw with Bud Light and Target, that we don't patronize those businesses. Democrats at the hearing often criticized Republicans for what they called wasting time on a hearing about ESG. They said there are more important topics to be discussed right now, such as funding the government, for example. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. Just ahead, 2023 governor election results are in for Kentucky and Mississippi. We speak to a reporter to get a breakdown of the candidates and some key issues. A letter to UPenn from lawmakers alleges a failure to condemn anti-Semitism and the Hamas terrorist attacks. Hear the UPenn president's response. Good to have you back. Overnight, we got the results to the governor races in Mississippi and Kentucky. Let's break those results down. We're bringing in Lawrence Wilson. He's a reporter for the Epic Times who's been following the elections closely. Now, good morning, Lawrence. Good to see you. Uh, let's start with Mississippi here. Reeves won the election. What issues do you think was he running on that were decisive? Because Democrat Brandon Presley was actually surprisingly strong. Yeah, Presley made a good run, but ultimately unsuccessful. The things that put Reeves over the top or kept him over the top, one was his economic record. He really campaigned hard on the fact that Mississippi has the lowest unemployment in the state's history. They'd recently passed a tax cut, which he billed as the largest tax cut in the state's history. And uh, they also made good progress in educational scores at a time when a lot of states were slipping backwards. So. He campaigned on the theme, Mississippi has momentum, and people uh, responded to that. Maybe more important, he was campaigning against Joe Biden. He was able to successfully tie this race to President Joe Biden, and uh, largely through the influx of donations from out of state that poured in for uh, Mr. Presley. That included uh, millions that came from the Democratic Governors Association. And uh, the, the Republicans really hammered on the fact that they wanted to keep Mississippi a conservative state for Mississippians. And that got a lot of traction with Republican voters. 
Now, in a broader sense, what do you think are the generally the issues that are on top of mind for people in Mississippi? Maybe also something that gained Presley the surprising um, uh, the, the surprising support. Yeah, he campaigned on two things and he hit them really hard. One was an expansion of Medicaid in the state. The state has 34 rural hospitals that are in danger of closing and it's been a real crisis in healthcare in this state. And Presley had said that he wanted to expand Medicaid, include about 280,000 more Mississippians, and that would really be a boost for these rural hospitals and keep the healthcare system health, uh, strong, uh, as well as be a help to Mississippians. He got a lot of traction with that. He also hit his opponent pretty hard on an alleged connection to a welfare scandal in the state that diverted about $77 million in public money that should have been for low-income families and used that to line the pockets of politically connected people. Now, he was never able to prove that the governor was actually involved in that. In fact, it happened before he was governor. He was lieutenant governor at the time. But a lot of people told me they just really didn't trust Tate Reeves, and that's what swung them for Brandon Presley. So let me ask you about this, because interestingly enough, both were pro-life. Do you think Presley, maybe it, it cost him votes? No, I don't think so. Because uh, in, in terms of the total picture, uh, for someone who is looking for uh, a candidate to support, uh, they would probably say that Brandon Presley was more suitable to people that just have democratic values. Uh, Gwendolyn Gray was an independent candidate. Now she dropped out a few weeks ago. She threw her support to Brandon Presley. So it was essentially just a two person race. And uh, Brandon Presley probably impressed people as being the more moderate, even in terms of his pro-life stance. So um, what about, let's move on to t Kentucky, also as a deeply red state. Um, what does yeah. Andy Bashir's win tell you? Well, Andy Bashir's win tells me that Andy Bashir is a good politician. He's well known for retail politics. He's good with people. And he responded extremely well to some tragedies that, that happened in that state recently, one being a shooting in Louisville uh, earlier this year and another some flooding that really devastated the eastern part of the state. And he was out there. He was the man on the scene. He responded well. People like him. Uh, also, it, think, it shows, I think, that there's a little bit more room in the middle than people are thinking. Uh, we're polarized quite a bit in this country. And Andy Bashir said, I'm going to work with people who will work with me on the things that matter to Kentuckians, to everyday people. And people, I think, responded to that. So maybe there's a, we'll see a little bit more of that in the days ahead. Hmm. Thank you so much for your take on this. I really appreciate that this morning. Lawrence Wilson. And over two dozen members of Congress sent the University of Pennsylvania a letter criticizing an alleged failure to condemn anti-Semitism. The letter cited what it called UPenn President Liz McGill's shocking lack of a prompt and unequivocal condemnation of the Hamas terror attacks. The letter was sent after wealthy donors and alumni penned letters to UPenn on the same issue. McGill responded in an open letter saying, quote, We can and will do better to combat anti-Semitism and to reject hate in all its forms. 
Police have identified a suspect in the death of Paul Kessler, a Jewish man who died after a confrontation at a pro-Israel rally in California. The suspect has cooperated with police and not been charged with any crime. According to a Ventura County Sheriff, the man was among those who called 911 to get help. He answered questions at the scene and has not been arrested or identified publicly. The case is being called a homicide from blunt force trauma to the head. However, officials said a death ruled a homicide only means that another person was involved. It doesn't necessarily mean anything criminal took place. Authorities have not ruled out that other people were involved. Coming up, a new bill introduced in the Senate could end the mass surveillance of Americans. We bring on the host of NTD Business for some details. New York's bail reform is causing issues for small businesses. We hear from a New York store owner who says more needs to be done to combat petty theft. That's after the break. Good to have you back. New legislation has been introduced to curb the FBI's surveillance powers. A bipartisan team of U.S. lawmakers says the bill helps close loopholes that allow officials to seize Americans' data without a warrant. So joining us now is NTD business host Don Ma to tell us more about this. Good morning, Don. Good to see you. Now highlight for us the main points, please, of this new legislation. Sure, um, but here's a bit of context first. Uh, the U.S. foreign surveillance system uh, collects a huge amount of data, and sometimes including on Americans. And there have been uh, years of discussion about the surveillance powers that law enforcement has that actually allows them to search through this huge amount of data uh, without needing a warrant. So then uh, this new legislation introduces restrictions on uh, searching through Americans' data, uh, which includes communication data as well without court approval. It also proposes a ban uh, on using foreign intelligence justifications to spy Americans. Some this, main points here. Yeah, this is pretty serious, Don, and I'll point out an oversight board actually found that it's not just in extreme cases when the FBI goes through Americans' data. They cited that it was actually routine practice for them. So why is law enforcement allowed to seize Americans' data without a warrant anyway? Well, uh, these are actually post 9-11 uh, uh, surveillance powers and Section uh, 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act allows this. And the justification by, uh, by executive branch officials is that uh, they have long insisted that this surveillance power is a critical tool for fighting foreign espionage and terrorism. But, you know, as we all know, Kevin, technology is usually a double-edged sword. Uh, it can have uh, tremendous benefits, but simultaneously can also be used maliciously. And I think that's where this legislation is coming from, which is uh, discomfort, right, over the practice of warrantless scans. And one of the bill's co-sponsors, Republican Senator Mike Lee, argues that uh, when the FBI snoops on the American people without a warrant, it's a breach of trust and a violation of the Constitution. Right. For now, it really sounds like a good idea, but I just hope that they're, they'll be able to enact it without really, you know, sacrificing these abilities to fight uh, terrorism and foreign espionage, right? But what else do you have for us today? Yeah, sure. Uh, it seems like a new report by Wallet Hub says American households added $78 billion to their debt in the third quarter. The average household debt is now over $145,000. 
It's about $13,000 below the record high set uh, back in 2008. And in an email to The Hill, uh, the managing director, uh, the managing editor of Wallet Hub predicted uh, Americans will add $350 billion more, uh, more debt in the next quarter due to holiday purchases and travel. The report also found a uh, total credit card debt increased to around $1 trillion last quarter, uh, which is about $190 billion below the all-time high. But uh, in other news, uh, seems like there may be more discouraging news for uh, potential home buyers. New research shows uh, this is the least affordable housing market since 1948. Uh, sorry, 1984, uh, when Ronald Reagan was president. The report from Intercontinental uh, Exchange shows more of a person's household income goes toward paying a mortgage than in recent years. High interest rates and the high cost for housing are to blame. Uh, the report also shows uh, the trend over the past 35 years was housing cost about 25% of a family's income. It now stands at nearly 41%. Uh, but on the flip side, uh, that means existing homeowners are enjoying increased wealth on their properties. Gotta love that equity. And going back to what you were saying earlier, Don, about this high credit card debt, you know, that's just something they don't teach you in schools. It's just how to manage your checkbook and how to keep, you know, yourself from falling into that trap. Well, it seems like a high debt could be just a characteristic of Americans. Uh, but you're right, Kevin. Well, Don Ma, host of NTD Business, thank you. Thank you. In New York City, petty theft is on the rise. Recent data from the NYPD shows last year, for the first time, it exceeded 100,000 cases. New York City Mayor Eric Adams recently launched the Retail Theft Task Force, vowing to crack down on shoplifting. We hear from a New York business owner on how independent grocers are deeply affected by public security. Entity's Cost MS has the story. Thank you. Good. Thank you. Good day. Retail theft has increased from just over 80,000 cases three years ago to its highest in over 20 years. A press conference addressing the issue will be held later today at New York City Mayor Eric Adams's residence. Francisco Marte owns three grocery stores in the Bronx and was also invited to attend the city's press conference. He is also the founder and chairman of the Bodega and Small Business Association. It's an organization that seeks to offer protection for small business owners and reduce the risks associated with theft. He founded the association around six years ago. He says the issue deeply affects independent grocers. Marte said that problems are exacerbated by the bail law reform passed by New York State in 2019. Despite a quicker response time from police, he says shoplifters are getting more and more aggressive because they know they don't have to bear the consequences. The bail law reform, officially implemented in 2020, not only coincides with the COVID-19 pandemic that has severely damaged the economy, but it also coincides with a wave of the Black Lives Matter movement and defunding the police. The same year, Marte launched an advocacy campaign to support the community and the police. But what troubles Marte is that if the value of the stolen goods in the store is less than $1,000, it does not constitute felony theft. Thieves can hide under the umbrella of bail reform and steal again and again. According to Marte, for the situation to improve, 
perpetrators need to face repercussions for their actions. To give a six month in jail, we don't need to do that. But at least we need to show the people that they are doing something wrong. At least giving a community day service that they have to do. Something that shows them that they are breaking the law, that they are doing something wrong. Pressing charge to the people who committed the crimes. That's what we need. That's, what we, that's the solution. While they don't press charge to the, to the child lifting, and we're going to be facing the same problems, and they're probably going to be getting worse and more violence every day. Bail reform became one of the key issues for both Democratic and Republican gubernatorial candidates in last year's New York gubernatorial election. Republican Lee Zeldin advocated for overturning bail reform, much in favor of Asian New York voters, who were concerned about public safety but he ultimately lost the election by a narrow margin to incumbent governor Kathy Hochul. Cost MNS, NTD News. Just ahead, are social media platforms knowingly harming teens? Another meta whistleblower testifying before Congress, a high-level director whose own daughter faced sexual harassment. Is President Biden's push for more safety in artificial intelligence enough? A data security expert answers this and explains the tech's underlying biases. Thanks for staying with us. President Biden has taken a big step to rein in artificial intelligence, but is it enough? We hear an answer to this from a founder of Darkbox Security Systems, Andrew Sternke, who starts by telling us what the order can do. The great thing about this executive order is that it takes significant steps towards establishing a governance framework uh, that is, you know, really needed for mandating uh, safety data sharing uh, and requiring federal standards for AI and creating task force for various sectors. Um, th this is big because it's beyond the voluntary commitments um, that's currently in place right now with various mandates. And then the risks um, regarding uh, AI is, you know, right now there really is a lack of comprehensive governance and regulation around AI, um, not just nationally, but internationally. And that requires, or that allows a lot of risks, um, you know, including disinformation, um, and then, you know, the potential encoded biases that we're already seeing in machine learning algorithms and privacy concerns with the data collection and, and also national security threats. Right. And to be more specific into that, those risks include deep fake disinformation and misinformation, racial discrimination and tax audits, according to Stanford, and these threats to privacy by collecting facial recognition data. So is there any way that this executive order through these task forces are really going to be able to break up those risks? Um, you know, it, it, it's it's the right steps forward. Um, the great thing about this uh, executive order is that it's, it's, it introduces a mandate for AI developers to share critical information with the U.S. government, uh, you know, which is a huge step towards transparency. Now, there are further needs, and that is, you know, there's a need for comprehensive transparency legislation that extends to all the various AI entities, including public disclosure, uh, to foster broader accountability. Right, there is only so much that the executive branch can do and that Congress has to take it from there to be more comprehensive. But what needs to be 
transparent here. When we look at this, we have a big, massive machine, and that's an AI, and somehow embedded in that are secret lines of code that need to be brought to light, or what is it? Uh, you, you, you hit it right on the head, you know, is we really need to understand, you know, what exactly is going on with the coding? You know, what sort of data are they gathering? And what are they using that for? So, you know, creating this, um, you know, mandate for transparency will, will be a very positive. And what are they looking for? I mean, is it just that they need to see every single line or are there specific things that are red flags? Well, I mean, just really seeing, you know, we're already seeing, you know, underlying biases and some of these uh, codings and whatnot. So really looking at the, you know, the ethical use of AI and seeing if it is going to discriminate against uh, individual civil rights, um, you know, things like that. And then also, you know, the data privacy concerns. Well, they say with these kind of machines, you know, you get out what you put in. So is that because they're fed certain things or is that just because they're programmed to be biased? Uh, both. So, I mean, they're, they're, they're fed certain things and then they're programmed. But unfortunately, you know, AI, you know, it, it's, it's, it's machine learning. And so it will learn what they see out there. If there's already biases that are already put out, then they will just build upon that. Yeah, and there are also concerns about national security, saying that these AI systems can actually make chemical weapons faster. So this is a very important topic here. Andrew Sternkey, founder of Darkbox Security Systems, thank you for your time. Great. Thanks for having me on. Another Facebook whistleblower, a former high-level engineer, testifies on how Facebook harms young children and how Facebook executives do little to nothing about it. NTD's Virginia Gibson has more. You have put your career on the line to come forward. Former meta engineer Arturo Behar was hired by Facebook specifically to protect children, among other things. While there, he discovered teens were experiencing serious levels of harm. In one study from 2021, he found 22% of 13 to 15-year-olds were bullied in the past seven days. Nearly 40% had been negatively compared to another person, and 13% had received unwanted sexual advances. Many have come to accept the false proposition that sexualized content, unwanted advances, bullying, misogyny, and other harms are unavoidable evil. This is just not true. We don't tolerate unwanted sexual advances against children in any other public context. Behar's findings suggest Facebook and Instagram are constantly harming millions of children. Senators brought up stories of children who had committed suicide, who had met drug dealers, pedophiles, and sex traffickers, all because of social media. Behar's own daughter among the victims. My 14-year-old daughter joined Instagram. She and her friends began having awful experiences including repeated unwanted sexual advances, harassment. She reported these incidents to the company, and it did nothing. Behar says he communicated his findings and recommended solutions to Facebook executives, including Mark Zuckerberg. But he said Zuckerberg ignored him and didn't implement his solutions. They've made a decision that it's not a priority to them because of uh, profit motive, have they not? in terms of what it's going to cost them in their business model if they have to interrupt it and monitor the content. I think that would be a wonderful question to ask Mark. It can speak to why they made these choices. It can only speak to the fact that 
they keep making these choices over and over again. Senator Lindsey Graham is on a mission to get rid of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. This would allow people to sue Meta over the content on its platform. If you could sue on behalf of your daughter, would you? I, I believe they just have to be held to account and being transparent. Okay. About well, one way of doing that is to sue them. Do you know you can't sue them under the current law? I did not know that. Those who oppose repealing Section 230 say it would create very harsh content moderation policies or even end social media itself. That's because the firms would be flooded by an overwhelming number of lawsuits. But Senator Graham and many other politicians say if the platforms are allowed to moderate content, they need to be accountable for the content. Virginia Gibson, NTD News. Well, certainly policy plays a big role here, but a lot of it comes down to the kitchen table. Just parents having those critical conversations with kids because there's buffers in schools. Like parents can count on the teachers to break up, you know, if there's some bullying going on. But in the digital sphere, that's much harder to do. That's exactly right. Um, that's just so much the government can do, and it's going to take long, like years and years, um, to actually enact certain things. So, yeah, thank you for that addition. But we're here starting into the second part of our broadcast. Voters took to the polls yesterday deciding on abortion access and marijuana legalization in one state and governors and legislators in others. Election results in Virginia. Did Governor Yunkin's traditional conservatism lead to more wins at the polls? And what impact will Ohio enshrining abortion access have? A former campaign advisor shares his thoughts. A new CNN poll shows President Biden trailing former President Trump in the upcoming 2024 presidential election. Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib censured by the House of Representatives. Hear her response to accusations of anti-Semitism. New legislation could end the mass surveillance of Americans. We bring on the host of Entity Business to give us the details. The European Space Agency has received the first images from its Euclid Space Telescope. We follow scientists as they attempt to uncover images millions of light years away. Hello again, and to those of you just joining us, good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning for me as well, and I'm Evelyn Lee. We're getting right into our top stories. Voters cast ballots yesterday to choose governors in Kentucky and Mississippi, decide legislative control in Virginia and New Jersey, and determine whether the Ohio state constitution should enshrine abortion access. NTD's Daniel Monahan has the latest results. Republicans and Democrats were tuning in to see if the results in key races would provide insight into the upcoming 2024 elections. Starting out with the gubernatorial contests, Democrat Governor Andy Beshear won re-election in Kentucky, defeating Republican State Attorney General Daniel Cameron. That's in a state that voted for former President Donald Trump by more than 25 percentage points in 2020. A July poll conducted by Morning Consult rated Bashir the nation's most popular Democratic governor. Cameron had repeatedly criticized Bashir for vetoing transgender-related bills, 
including one that banned cross-sex procedures on minors and another that prevented men who identify as women from participating in women's sports. In Mississippi, Republican Governor Tate Reeves won his bid for re-election against Democrat Brandon Presley, a second cousin of singer Elvis Presley. Reeves had consistently led the polls in the deep red state, which has not elected a Democrat as governor in 20 years. Over to the legislature, all 40 seats in Virginia's Senate and 100 seats in the House of Delegates were up for grabs. One of the House of Delegates races includes a candidate embroiled in a sex scandal. Democrat Susanna Gibson allegedly engaged in explicit acts with her husband on a pornographic website. Democrats held control of the Senate and won control of the House in those races. The Democrats' sweep thwarts the possibility of a new 15-week abortion ban that Republicans had vowed to pass had they won control of the legislature. In New Jersey, Republicans were fighting for control of either legislative chamber in the deep blue state, where all seats in the General Assembly and Senate are in play. Republicans have gained ground since 2021 when they flipped seven seats and campaigned on issues ranging from the economy to parental rights. Some races have yet to be called, but the Washington Post reports that Democrats held on to enough seats to thwart Republican attempts to take control of one or both chambers for the first time in over 20 years. Over to a pair of Ohio ballot measures. Ohioans voted to enshrine abortion access in the state constitution. That will nullify a six-week abortion limit signed into law by Republican Governor Mike DeWine. Voters also approved a ballot measure legalizing marijuana for recreational use. Turning to the courts, Democratic candidate Daniel McCaffrey won the open seat on Pennsylvania's Supreme Court, defeating Republican Carolyn Carluccio for the 10-year position. His victory widens the Democratic majority on the state's highest court to 5-2. to two. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Now for some analysis of the local elections in Virginia, we're bringing in Bart Marcois, a policy advisor. Bart, it's always great to talk with you. Did Governor Yunkin's traditional conservatism lead to more wins in the polls? Good morning, Kevin. No, Governor Yunkin's leadership led to losses in the polls, and uh, it was uh, surprising. Many of us, I, I worked uh, as an advisor and as an activist in this election, and I expected to do better. I expected that we would win the state Senate. And why is that? Is it because he doesn't see eye to eye on a lot of things with former President Trump? Uh, there, there, is a, there is an element of that. The, the, the simple answer, the direct answer is turnout. The Democrats had an enormous, effective turnout machine. We saw turnout here that was approaching the levels in a congressional election or even a presidential election year. And that was attributable to paid staffers who were going door to door in the months before the election, paid for by all the reports we're hearing by George Soros money, uh, registering Democrats, making sure that they were there, ordering absentee ballots on their behalf and and turning in those ballots and make sure that they turn up to vote on Tuesday, on yesterday. The Republican turnout model was very, uh, very energetic, but it relied on a network of volunteers and it relied on the traditional turnout um, uh, steps that political parties in America have generally taken 
you call up your neighbors and you say, hey, remember Tuesday is election day, vote, remember to that we can vote early. Hey, did you turn in your ballot yet? Are you working? None of that works as well as having armies of paid staffers that are dragging voters to the polls or dragging ballots to the polls. And on that note, this alleged Soros money, can you assess the legality and ethics of this? You know, I, I think that it is technically legal if it is, if it is George Soros, if it's his money, uh, he's an American citizen, he's entitled to spend his money, uh, it, is, it is admissible for, or permissible for a 501c4 organization to, to do voter turnout. However, there are rumors that a lot of the money coming in is not just Soros in origin, it's Soros directed, but it's foreign in origin, and that is highly illegal. There's a lot of uh, suspicion that China has been sending money to dark money groups to influence American elections. They are particularly focused on Virginia because Yunkin was seen as a possible presidential contender for the Republicans and they needed to they needed to destroy him. There were the Democrats outspent the Republicans in Virginia by a factor of probably three to one. And in the dark money it's probably more like ten to one or twenty to one. And much of that dark money is foreign. That's highly illegal, but it takes sophisticated investigative methods to uncover that and to prove it. Well, thanks for the insight into that. Let's shift gears a little bit here and talk about abortion. The fight for the Senate was largely seen as a battle between protecting the unborn versus granting more access to abortion. Do you think that Youngkin's message on a 15-week abortion limit was effective? I don't think most voters knew that his message was that there would be a 15-week limit. The Democrat Party has become a death cult, and abortion is their holiest sacrament. They ran their campaign nearly entirely on abortion, but it was a straw man. They said that Republicans would ban all abortion if they won the uh, the state house and the state senate, and and Republicans avoided discussing abortion. They discussed everything else that was on voters' minds. They talked about the economy, they talked about parental rights in schools, they talked about rising crime, rising inflation. All of the ills and the woes of Bidenomics and of the, of the current atmosphere that the Biden administration has plunged us into, but they avoided talking about abortion. I think if they had talked about it and addressed it directly and had an honest discussion about abortion and said, look, this is not a question of abortion versus no abortion. It's a question of a reasonable 15-week limit versus abortion at nine months of pregnancy, which is what the Democrats will try to pass if they get control of the governor's office as well as the legislature. They have tried before. They will probably pass it now through the uh, state house and the uh, in the state senate. That's aborting a baby minutes before it can be born. That's what the Democrats are pushing for. I find that abhorrent, and most Virginians would find that abhorrent if they knew that's what the Democrats were pushing for. Youngkin failed to fight hard in that. 
I see. And let's be clear here that the Democrat voters, of course, they have their opinions on things far from a death cult, this party is. Whether the politicians themselves have certain agendas at play, that's one thing. Bart Marquois, former presidential campaign policy advisor, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thank you, Kevin. And we are one year away from the presidential election, and a new CNN poll shows former President Donald Trump narrowly leads President Biden among registered voters. The poll found President Biden's support among several key groups is significantly weaker than in 2020. That includes people under 35, plus independent, black, and Latino voters. The new poll shows only one in four Americans believe Biden has the stamina and sharpness to serve a second term in office, while 53% say Trump does. Both men have unfavorable ratings in the mid to high 50s. To break down the results of the 2023 governor elections, I spoke to Lawrence Wilson, an Epic Times reporter, about key issues in this year's race. The things that put Reeves over the top or kept him over the top, one was his economic record. He really campaigned hard on the fact that Mississippi has the lowest unemployment in the state's history. They recently passed a tax cut, which he billed as the largest tax cut in the state's history. And... Uh, they also made good progress in educational scores at a time when a lot of states were slipping backwards. So he campaigned on the theme, Mississippi has momentum and people uh, responded to that. Maybe more important, he was campaigning against Joe Biden. He was able to successfully tie this race to President Joe Biden and uh, largely through the influx of donations from out of state that poured in for uh, Mr. Presley. That included uh, millions that came from the Democratic Governors Association. And uh, the, the Republicans really hammered on the fact that they wanted to keep Mississippi a conservative state for Mississippians. And that got a lot of traction with Republican voters. Let's move on to Kentucky, also as a deeply red state. Um, what does yeah. Andy Bashir's win tell you? Well, Andy Bashir tells me that Andy Bashir is a good politician. He's well known for retail politics. He's good with people. And he responded extremely well to some tragedies that, that happened in that state recently, one being a shooting in Louisville uh, earlier this year and another some flooding that really devastated the eastern part of the state. And he was out there. He was the man on the scene. He responded well. People like him. Uh, also, it, think, it shows, I think, that there's a little bit more room in the middle than people are thinking. Uh, we're polarized quite a bit in this country. And Andy Bashir said, I'm going to work with people who will work with me on the things that matter to Kentuckians, to everyday people. And people, I think, responded to that. So maybe a, we'll see a little bit more of that in the days ahead. Up next, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib censured by the House of Representatives. Hear more about what Tlaib calls a very dangerous precedent. Special counsel David Weiss says politics played no part in his investigation into Hunter Biden. House Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan responds. Good to have you back. The House voted yesterday to censure Michigan Representative Rashida Tlaib, a punishment one step below expulsion. The 234 to 188 final vote came after some Democrats sided with Republicans to pass the measure. 
Representative Rich McCormick moved to censure Tlaib for what he called her anti-Semitic rhetoric and for calling for the destruction of the state of Israel. Tlaib said she will not be silenced and her criticisms were directed toward the Israeli government. She said, quote, the idea that criticizing the government of Israel is anti-Semitic sets a very dangerous precedent. Many opponents of the censure in both parties cited free speech as their objection and warned of the precedent this censure could set. Tlaib becomes the 26th person ever to be censured by the chamber and the second person this year. Tlaib will have the formal reprimand read aloud to her on the House floor. U.S. Special Counsel David Weiss made a rare appearance before Congress yesterday. Weiss is overseeing the Hunter Biden federal investigation. The closed-door interview marked the first time a special counsel has testified to lawmakers while in the middle of an investigation. The prosecutor said he would not answer questions that could jeopardize the probe and would only talk about the scope of his authority. House Republicans are looking to ramp up the pressure of their impeachment inquiry into President Biden and his family. That's over allegations and whistleblower testimony that the Justice Department improperly interfered with the Hunter Biden investigation. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg tells us more. Special Counsel David Weiss Tuesday contradicted earlier IRS whistleblower testimony in his nearly seven-hour-long closed-door interview with the House Judiciary Committee. He said at no time was he interfered with, blocked, or stopped from bringing charges in his probe of Hunter Biden. Weiss testified political considerations played no part in the investigation and that he is and has been the ultimate decision maker on the case. But he says he does not make decisions in a vacuum and must follow DOJ and federal guidelines, processes and law. IRS whistleblowers Gary Shapley and his deputy Joseph Ziegler alleged the Justice Department interfered throughout Weiss's investigation and testified Weiss was not the deciding person on if charges against the president's son were filed. They also alleged Weiss asked for special counsel authority from the DOJ but was denied. Shapley provided meeting notes and email exchanges to Congress to back up his claims. Weiss disputes the allegations, as does Attorney General Merrick Garland. But House Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan says Weiss has changed his story multiple times now and that his statements Tuesday contradict his previous testimony. Jordan told Fox News host Sean Hannity that Weiss said under oath he had previously asked for special attorney status but was never granted it. So he sought it, but was never actually given that. And yet he maintained somehow that, oh, I still had the authority, even though I asked for it. And even though they never gave it to me, somehow he still had it. Jordan says it only further confirms what whistleblowers have said. Democratic Representative Mary Gay Scanlon called the hearing a desperate search for political dirt that she says isn't there. And we see Jim Jordan and his MAGA crew out there trying to weaponize the Judiciary Committee. GOP Representative Matt Gates called Weiss's testimony very evasive. The reason Congress has questions is because that deliberative process has resulted in some pretty bizarre outcomes that we can't explain to our constituents. At least 10 FBI, IRS and DOJ current and former officials have testified behind closed doors as part of lawmakers' inquiry so far. Congressman Jordan says Weiss's transcribed interview will be out in a couple days. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. A new report on former President Trump's real net worth might surprise you. Bloomberg Billionaires Index says it jumped by more than $500 million since he left office in, nearly, in early 2021. The index stated it believes Trump's, Trump is worth $3.1 billion. That's up from about $2.6 billion since President Biden's inauguration. 
Bloomberg said the reason for the increase was property values going up between 2021 and 2023, and that a number of properties in Manhattan, including the Trump Tower, are worth hundreds of millions of dollars each. It says his Mar-a-Lago resort in, California, in Florida is worth $240 million, and his liquid assets are worth around $600 million. The index noted it valued Trump's assets by using a 2021 statement made up of financial and mortgage filings as well as market data. The properties in the index were valued as is, meaning the value of their potential development was not considered. And a new bill has been introduced to curb the FBI's surveillance powers. A bipartisan team of U.S. lawmakers says the bill helps close loopholes that allowed officials to seize Americans' data without a warrant. And we spoke with NTD business host Don Ma for more. Take a look. The U.S. foreign surveillance system uh, collects a huge amount of data and sometimes including on Americans. And there have been uh, years of discussion about the surveillance powers that law enforcement has that actually allows them to search through this huge amount of data uh, without needing a warrant. So then uh, this new legislation introduces restrictions on uh, searching through Americans' data, uh, which includes communication data as well, without court approval. It also proposes a ban uh, on using foreign intelligence justifications to spy on Americans. Some yes. main points here. So why is law enforcement allowed to seize Americans' data without a warrant anyway? Well, uh, these are actually post-9-11 uh, uh, surveillance powers. And Section uh, 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act allows this. And the justification by, uh, by executive branch officials is that uh, they have long insisted that this surveillance power is a critical tool for fighting foreign espionage and terrorism. But, you know, as we all know, Kevin, technology is usually a double-edged sword. Uh, it can have a tremendous benefits, but simultaneously can also be used maliciously. And I think that's where this legislation is coming from, which is uh, discomfort, right, over the practice of warrantless scans. And one of the bill's co-sponsors, Republican Senator Mike Lee, argues that uh, when the FBI snoops on the American people without a warrant, it's a breach of trust and a violation of the Constitution. In other news, we travel out of this world to glimpse at the secrets of the universe. European astronomers released the first images from the newly launched Euclid Space Telescope. One of the photos shows a nearby galaxy 250 million light years away. Yeah, 240 million light years. It's just right down the block. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the European Space Agency says the telescope can monitor billions of galaxies up to 10 billion light years away. The ESA is leading Euclid's six-year mission partnering with NASA. Scientists hope to gain a better understanding of the universe through these photos. Wow. 240 million. All the things we don't know about in this universe. Yeah, and space exploration has been known to advance science and, you know, infotech, even health, medicine, and stuff like that. But the question remains, you know, how can we spend all that money looking at things that are so far away when we have other issues that we need to address right here on Earth. That's true. Let's focus on Earth first. <laughs> All right, uh, we have to wrap up our show now, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information. Stay tuned for our news broadcast, uh, for a News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Ev Ev Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.